Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. Okay. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and go then. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I said it's in the booklet, Hear now the word of the living God. To the angel of, of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Two of the greatest books of the 20th century that are two of my absolute all-time favorite novels were written by George Orwell and Aldous Huxley and they were both dystopian views of the future as to what they saw as a, a potential dark future, but they were actually almost diametrically opposed, exactly opposite. In 1984, George Orwell's nightmare was one of coercion by Big Brother and the entire government forcing and controlling people's thoughts and dictating their every behavior. On the other hand, in Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's nightmare was one not of coercion, but rather of seduction by pleasure. People's behavior was controlled not because the government tried to force it so much as the government had co-opted them by pleasure and enjoyment, and the people no longer asked the other questions. They no longer attempted to even live a different way. Neil Postman, who was one of the great media critics of the 20th century, uh, in the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, which you can tell where he's going to go with that, wrote this about Orwell and Huxley. He said, what Orwell feared was those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In short, Orwell feared that what we will hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Now what's interesting is, in recent months, the book 1984 surged way up on bestseller lists. Again, as people became concerned that we were heading into another period with Big Brother. 
and the revelation of WikiLeaks and the CIA hacking is only going to increase that worry that people are worried that the government is listening to what I say to my grandmother on my iPhone. Uh, what I want to point out today is you might be worried more about what the iPhone does to you than what the CIA would be doing to you. And what is a bigger danger for us may well be Huxley's nightmare rather than Orwell's. Because as we're going to see today, what Orwellian persecution failed to do to the church in Pergamum, Huxley's nightmare of seduction was accomplishing. So let's take a look at the church in Pergamum. Now, Jesus is speaking to this church, and it says, you know, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? But most of us know nothing about Pergamum, so what is this place? Pergamum was about 70 miles north of Smyrna. That's the city we had looked at. You remember there was Ephesus and then Smyrna, and we're now up to Pergamum. It's about 70 miles north, but unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, it's not right on the coast. It's about 15 miles inland. It is another large, important city about 150,000 people, and originally it was the capital of Asia, not Ephesus. It had originally held that title. It had the second greatest library in the world behind Alexandria. There were some 200,000 volumes, if I remember correctly. It was large library, and in fact, I did not know this until my research this week. The word parchment, which we get for the, the not using the paper, basically, but using uh, animal skins and things, originally is derived from the word Pergamum in the Greek. That's where they got it from because parchment supposedly was first used there in part because there was a rivalry going on for who was going to have the greater library, them or Alexandria. Papyrus came from Egypt and so they were shutting it down because they didn't want this rival library. It was an important center and this gets more to the point for what we're going to be looking at along with this culture and education. It was an important center for pagan and emperor worship. Uh, there was, uh, in Pergamum, almost all cities that were built on the Greek model, and most of the world was by this time, what you have is you would have a city, and then they would have the Acropolis, which was the high point of the city that kind of overlooked the rest of the city, and this is where you would build your temples and such. Pergamum had an unusually large, high Acropolis that dominated the whole city, and at the very top of it, right in the front part where it was uh, seen by everyone was a large altar to Zeus that was massive, one of the largest in the ancient world, and it dominated over everything in the city. Whenever you were in Pergamum, when you looked up, you saw the altar to Zeus towering over the city. But they were also a major center for the worship of the god Asclepius, who is the god of healing, whose symbol is a snake. That sounds weird to us, but have you ever noticed that our medical symbols, what do we have in the medical seal? A snake, and why is that? I would make jokes about how it references the doctors, except that would be lawyers, right? Not doctors. So it's actually because it goes back to the god Asclepius, whose symbol was the snake, and so when we took that into our own symbols for healing, we took that symbol of the snake. And Asclepius was a major deity that was worshiped in this area of Pergamon. There were all kinds of traditions behind that, but it was well known for it. And so this city took its idolatry and its worship of the emperor seriously. They were very serious about it. And as we saw last week, that can be a problem 
for a young church because Christians could participate neither in pagan idolatrous worship nor could they worship the emperor. Hence the problems and the persecution. Now Jesus is going to speak to this church and as we saw last week when Smyrna was in a place where emperor worship was really stressed uh, that they're in the city of Smyrna, Jesus comes and he speaks a very comforting word and the vision we have of Jesus is comforting from the beginning that he is sovereign and he is there with his church. But we get a little bit different vision here. Notice in verse 12 we read that these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now again, every one of these begins with these are the words of him which reference deity, the king of kings speaking. You can go back and listen to the teaching on Ephesus where I talked about that. But notice here, we get this issue of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And you might wonder, well, how is this going to comfort this church in this area? The answer is it's not really a comforting vision as we're going to see. It's more a vision of warning. The sword is a sign of judgment. It's used six times in the book, and every time other than in Revelation 1, in the initial vision of Jesus where he has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and here, every other time it's very clear it is judgment. You see it in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he is writing in judgment. He has the same sword mentioned as coming out of his mouth. So every other time it's clear that it's judgment. There's no reason to not assume it is here and we're going to see in a few minutes that it in fact is. And that's because the sword was a symbol of capital punishment. Okay? If we won't take the time to turn there, but in Revelation 13, 4, Paul's saying you need to be submitted to the governing authorities that are instituted by God. And he says, for remember, he does not bear the sword in vain. It's not for nothing that he's got that sword. He is here to punish evildoers. And the sword was a symbol in Roman society that meant the person who bears the sword has the right of life and death. He can actually execute death upon you. And Pergamum is a rare city in that most uh, places in the Roman Empire were not allowed to execute people. You could not do capital punishment. Only the Roman authorities had the right. You remember with Jesus, where the high priests come and they ask, and they say, well, we'd like to kill him, but we don't have the right, so we're asking you. Well, Pergamum was one of the rare cities that was allowed to do capital punishment. So the sword is a very appropriate symbol for it. And it's a reminder that the one who is speaking to his church is the sovereign one in whose hands are life and death. He, not Caesar, has got ultimate control. And so they need to pay attention to this. Now, Jesus then speaks to the church, and what does he say to them? Well, he begins with a word of praise for their faithfulness under persecution. The church in Pergamum has lived through Orwell's nightmare, and they have done very well and Jesus commends them. In verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Can you that, would that uh, be a little bit of a discouraging word if Jesus said that, Bay Ridge, here's my word to you, I know where you live, right where Satan has his throne. That, that's not very comforting. That's not, a, Lord, could you call us somewhere else? Okay, but he says, I know where you live, and, but what he's saying is, but I know you've endured. And where you live is where Satan has his throne and he lives in Pergamum. And the interesting thing is there, notice at the end of verse 13, he says, in your city where Satan lives. And that's the exact same word where Jesus says, this is where you live. It's the same word in Greek. So where you live is where 
Satan lives. Where I have called you to be is right where Satan has set up shop and he lives there. And furthermore, Satan has his throne there. Twice we're told this in the one verse, that he lives there and that he has his throne there. Now, scholars argue back and forth, is there a specific reference that Jesus has in mind? I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that when you come into the city, that the most dominating feature is this altar of Zeus that towers over the city, and that could be the throne of Satan. Here is Zeus, the head rival god in the Greco system, the one that would be the rival to Yahweh, and he's got this massive altar that dominates the entire city. However, it might be Asclepius, because his symbol is the serpent, and we're going to come back in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be told that Satan, that ancient dragon, the serpent is going to be fighting against the people of God. And so it very well could be Asclepius. However, they were very zealous about their emperor worship. They were, they have been given the coveted title of temple sweeper, why they come up with these titles and think that's coveted, but they were temple sweepers, which referred to their emperor worship, that they were viewed as being so zealous for worshiping the emperor, which obviously again creates huge problems for the Christians. What I think is it's probably that whole mix. When you're sitting there and the dominant physical feature of the city is an altar to Zeus, what you are known worldwide for is the worship of the pagan god Asclepius, whose symbol is the serpent. And when you are in a place that is zealous about pagan worship, that is a tough place to be a Christian. And so Jesus gives his own estimation and says, I know this is a tough place to live. This is where Satan lives. In fact, this is where Satan has set up his throne. He is so comfortable there, he plopped his throne down there. And I am aware that I have called you to live in the midst of that. And yet, he says, you did not renounce my faith. You did not renounce your faith in me, and you uh, did not... uh, turn back from me. You did not deny me in any way. You have held to me. You have stayed true to my name. And he says, you did this where you held true to my name, even when Antipas was murdered. Notice there in verse 13, says, you didn't renounce your faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word for witness is martus, from which we get what word? Martyr. And that's because faithful witnesses in the early church so often became martyrs. In the ancient Greek world, if you go back to the times of Plato, nobody associated Martus with being a martyr. That's something that really came about under the church. And Antipas is a witness, is what it literally says, who was put to death in the city. We would today just say he was a martyr. Uh, Antipas, my faithful martyr. But what's amazing is there's one other person in the book of Revelation that's called the faithful witness. You know who it is? Jesus. Revelation 1, 5. He has spoken that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness. And Jesus says, here's how I hold you all in esteem. That man Antipas, when it got hot, when Orwell's nightmare came, and they came against you, and Satan flexed his muscles, and Antipas was called upon, he was like me. He was a faithful witness witness. And they took that man's life. And when that happened, you all did not renounce my name. You did not back down. You stood true. You held to me. That is 
high praise for a church under persecution. They have lived and survived in Orwell's nightmare. And would to God that that's where the letter ended. But unfortunately, it rolls to verse 14. And Jesus says, nevertheless, this is the, the strongest Greek word for but. But I have a few things against you. So in spite of the praise, there's problems. You've done well in Orwell's nightmare, but there's something else. This is very similar to the wording in Ephesus. It's virtually identical to what is said to Ephesus and that we're going to see next week to Thyatira. The only difference is both of them say, but I have this against you. I have something against you. This says, I have a few things against you. It's, it's, it's a lesser thing. I, I don't have, you know, th- these major things, but there, there's something small. There's a few things against you because it appears that the process has not gone as far in Pergamum as we're going to see it's gone in Thyatira next week. And it has not created the problems that it had created in Ephesus. And so there's just a few things. And here's what it is. You have some not everybody, but there's a group within the church that is holding to the teaching of Balaam and also in verse 15 to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And what's interesting here is the word for hold is the same word for you remain true to my name is how the NIV translates it. So when he says, you remain true to my name, you have held on to my name, but unfortunately some of you are holding on to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so you are compromising by holding on to false teachers. You are giving in to what they are saying. And Balaam and the Nicolaitans seem to be the same, teaching very, very similar, if not identical things. It seems to almost be two uh, different groups. Nicolaitans is is a play on words. Uh, We wouldn't be aware of this, but the Greek word Nike, from which is developed Nike, means victors overcomers so there's a a play on words that this group kind of claims to be the overcomers but jesus says they're not and there's a problem here and they're very similar to this this group that he's referring to as balaam now balaam most of us know who is that yeah the guy whose donkey talked to him right he's the false old testament prophet and we remember if nothing else that hey the donkey talked to this guy but his story is incredible when we consider it and what Jesus is saying and why he references it. He's not saying Balaam literally lives again there, nor that the false prophet is literally named Balaam. He's using an Old Testament reference. We're going to see in Thyatira, he's going to call the false prophetess Jezebel. Okay? And he's saying, reference this because the same thing happened then is happening now to my people. And so what is it about Balaam? Well, you can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24 is the story that we think of for him But then particularly in Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, and then it's referenced again in Numbers 31, verse 16, there's a referencing back to what Balaam did. And here's what went on. Balaam is this wayward prophet. You remember he was called, Israel was going through the wilderness. They were on their way towards the promised land. And a king named Balak, different person, had said, I got to get somebody to curse them. And the best prophet we know of is Balaam. So send for Balaam. Balaam says, well, I really can't come and do that. It's not going to work. But Balak is like, I'll give you a lot of money. 
And so Balaam is trying to convince Yahweh to let him go. And that's when we get the whole donkey incident and everything else. But Yahweh says, you're going to say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam gets there and he says, I, I can't do what you want. And three times he blesses Israel. But we're told the first two times he basically tried to manipulate God into letting him curse Israel. Okay, that's what's going on in the text. And Yahweh keeps overcoming and saying, you're not going to do that. And the third time Balaam, Balaam says, look, this isn't going to work. And I've already told this guy, I'm not even going to try and manipulate Yahweh. I already know what's going to happen at the end of this. I'm going to bless Israel. So he does all of that. Well, Balak, of course, is not very happy. He's like, I'm offering you all this money. So Balaam, we're told in Numbers 25, 1 to 3, says, look, I, it's not going to work. You can't attack these guys. If you go down there and you do a frontal assault with the army, it's not going to work. They're blessed by Yahweh. But here's what you could do. Send some of your women down there. And if you can get some of the men to sin sexually and to start sleeping with those women, and then the women can lure them into idolatry, then they'll be in trouble with Yahweh because he's a holy God. So we're told in Numbers 25, 1 to 3, and Numbers 31, 16, that's exactly what happens. And 23,000 Israelites are struck down and die that day. Because what could not be accomplished by brute force was done by the back door of seduction. Israel stood strong when it came to the front door and armed conflict, but they were seduced by Balaam. And what's really interesting is, the, notice the word here, they hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. And that word entice uh, is actually in some translations it has a, to put a stumbling block in front of them. The original Greek word was what was used in a trap. It was the peg that when you set a trap, I used to, when I was a kid, we made rabbit boxes and you put some stuff in the back and when the rabbit goes in, it hits a little peg and the trap snaps down and the rabbit's trapped. And that's the word that's used. That's what Balaam did. He said, look, here's a peg. Send your women down and when the men come in, they're caught over. You got him. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly what Balaam did in the Old Testament. And you stood strong in Orwell's nightmare. But, but, Balaam came along and you got, you tripped the peg. You fell over the, the stumbling block. It's the same word that's used that Jesus is a scandal. The scandalon is the Greek word. But it was originally a peg that fell for a trip. And it's something that we trip over. And originally it dealt that we were caught in a trap. And the trap here, he says, is you're eating meat sacrificed to idols and their sexual immorality, which is the same thing. It's idolatry and immorality. The same two things that happened in Balaam's day in the original story. And this is all because Balaam and the original story in the Old Testament and Balaam day knew that if you can get them to compromise... If you can get them to give in on these sexual sins and on idolatry, then God's blessing is removed from them. And in fact, they now come under the disciplining hand of God. And so what you can't accomplish by brute force, you can get by seduction, is what you're going to do. And the same two temptations are in Pergamum that happened to ancient Israel. So let's look at these two. The amazing thing to us is, when we think of idolatry and immorality, most Americans would say, well, those aren't really related to one another other than they kind of both start with I, I guess. It's 
not true. Biblically, they are related over and over and over again. You can get these off of the website if you download the, the outline. I'm, I'm not going to read all these scriptures, but here's all the places where idolatry and immorality are or not all the places. This is just a few of them. In Exodus 32, verses 6 to 8, where they make the golden calf, and then they get up to indulge in pagan revelry. What does that mean? They, they had an orgy. That's what it means. In Numbers 25, 1 to 3 with Balaam, in Numbers 31, 16, where we're specifically told that Balaam got them to do that and they worshiped Baal of Peor and there was an immorality involved. In Acts chapter 15, verses 20 and 29, when the council met together and they told the Gentiles, here's four things we're telling you. We're not asking you to do everything, but here's four things. And among them is you cannot get meat that's uh, sacrifice house, and you got to avoid sexual immorality. First two things that are mentioned, Acts 15, 20, and 29. In Acts 21, 25, when they're talking with Paul and they reference back to the council, they bring up those same two items again. In Romans chapter 1, verses 23 to 28, the apostle Paul says that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and beast and animals. And therefore God handed them over to a depraved mind. And the first thing we did was sexual immorality. It's the very first thing that's mentioned. And in fact, the spiral goes down worse, that idolatry led to sexual immorality. And Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21, Paul lists the vices of the flesh. And the first two things that are mentioned are immorality and idolatry. In this long list, they are linked together. And in fact, it's, it's a form of sexual immorality, idolatry, and then another form of sexual immorality. They're sandwiched together because they're so closely connected. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, things that mean we cannot be inheritors of the kingdom of God. And again, first in the list is sexual immorality and idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, Paul references back to Old Testament Israel and two incidents, the incident at the golden calf and the incident with Baal, with, uh, I mean, uh, Balaam and brings those out and says, look, it was idolatry and it's immorality and that's what got Israel in trouble. And now you're wanting to go down to the temple and think you can participate in the idolatrous practices and somehow you're going to come out clean and it doesn't. And that's why some of you have been trapped in Corinth, now down there with temple prostitutes. In uh, Revelation 2.14 and 2.20, idolatry and sexual immorality are mentioned together. One of those in this letter, one in the next letter. I could give many other references. They are consistently linked together in the scripture. And the reason for this is that a false view of God and sexual immorality are closely linked. And when the people of God compromise in one, sin in the other is sure to follow. Show me a group that gives in to a false view of God, and I will guarantee you sexual license is not far behind. Show me a group, a church, that gives into a false view of human sexuality, idolatry will immediately follow. They will not hold to orthodox thought and doctrine. And we have seen it over and over and over again. If you don't believe it, just start taking a list of denominations in the United States and look and see if those two are not always together. They are always together. And so this was also true because very practically in the ancient world, they were actually linked. When you went down and you sacrificed to a pagan deity, very, very often there were temple prostitutes. And part of the worship of the idol was the use of temple prostitutes. That was just common over and over again. And so 
for this reason, the early church was like, don't go down there to the temples. It's just the whole thing is bad. It's trouble all the way around. Now, what's interesting is, and I was wondering, and I thought, because of a couple of scriptures I was most familiar with, that the biblical view was going to be that it is idolatry first and sexual immorality second. What I discovered is it's almost evenly split as to which is the chicken and which is the egg and which came first. Uh, idolatry is listed as the root cause in the Exodus 32 passage, in Acts 15 and in Acts 21, in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 10. But sexual sin is listed as the first cause in Numbers 25, Numbers 31, Galatians 5, and 1 Corinthians 6. And in fact, idolatry is mentioned first in Revelation 2.14, but when you go back to the Balaam story, it was actually sexual immorality was first that led to the idolatry. And so, the reason for this is not that the scripture is confused, it's that the relationship between sexual immorality and idolatry is symbiotic, with each other feeding off of and fueling the other. It's not that one is the root and the other is the fruit. They're symbiotic. They're feeding into one another. And it does not matter where you step into the cycle. It always feeds to the other one. And it always fuels the other one. It's a deadly concoction. It's Huxley's nightmare. And in fact, true to form, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, the largest pleasure that was used to get people to not even be interested in books or anything else was sex. And people had lost any view. Huxley was actually an atheist, but his view of this diabolical future was pretty incredible that people no longer read any kind of books, including the scripture or the works of Shakespeare or anything else, because they had just been pleasured out of any interest in anything else. And, and actually, and the pleasure, amazing enough, was the only way you could get in trouble in Brave New World, if you want to read the book, is not by, by normal sexual relations, but you get in trouble if you sleep with the same person two or three days in a row. They want to know why. They want you having sex every day, but just not with the same person because it has to be sinful sexual relationships. And so it's exactly, uh, Huxley's nightmare is exactly what we see in the scripture. And so what Satan had failed to accomplish by the frontal assault of persecution in Pergamum, he accomplished through the seduction of idolatry and immorality. The same thing had happened with Balaam and he couldn't directly curse Israel, but idolatry and immorality led to the removal of God's blessing and brought his hand of discipline. And Jesus says, and now Pergamum, you have fallen for the same trap. You hit the same peg. You're caught in the same place. Some in Pergamum have been seduced into idolatry and sexual immorality, and the whole church is being called to account. Jesus isn't just speaking to those few. He's calling the whole church to account for allowing this in their midst. And so the third thing he does is he gives a word of warning. He's given them a word of praise, but then he had to give them a rebuke. Now he's given them a word of warning. The word of warning is in verse 16. He says, repent, therefore. And so once again, we have the command to repent because that's always the way out of our sin. Our culture wants to come up with anything else, but the word every time to one of these churches where there's correction, it's always the same thing that begins. Repent. You start by changing your mind. You have believed this teaching. You have believed this idea that somehow idolatry and immorality aren't really that big a deal. But Jesus, the living God with the sword out of the mouth, says, no, it's a big deal. 
That's a very big deal. And so you need to repent. You need to change your way of thinking with a corresponding change in your actions. And notice, the whole church is commanded to repent, even though only a few people have been engaging this. Only a few. There's some among you that are doing this, but he's speaking to the whole church. And he says, the whole church, I'm calling you to repent. Because the church is called to do the hard work of correcting erring members and helping them to repent and forsake their idolatry and immorality. And this is particularly where a church that has become compromised because of pleasure doesn't want to do this kind of hard work. See, it's difficult. Well, I'm not doing it, but you know, that's just what they're doing. But Jesus says, no, you can't do that. I'm calling the entire church to repent, and the entire church needs to understand you're giving in to Balaam. And when Balaam got his way going into Israel, a plague broke out among everybody. There was a problem all over the place because sin is never contained. It always spreads out. It always, it's, it's like a disease. It's like a, a virus. It just keeps spreading. And so Jesus tells them in verse 16, repent, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now the interesting thing is when we think of Jesus in the book of Revelation coming, that's a comforting thing to the church. It's the coming at the end, but there's many times that he comes in the book of Revelation and it's not talking about at the end of days. And it's also not talking about a comforting thing. I'm coming not in blessing. I'll be coming in judgment. And he says, I'm going to fight against them, the people who are adhering to these teachings, who are holding to these false teachings. I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So we have no question the sword there in the initial vision is not one of comfort. Because here's what I'm going to do. That sword is coming out of my mouth, and I am going to fight against them. And so... Notice here, this is sometimes we try and get this. Well, how do you get a sword in the mouth and all that? It, it's symbolic, okay? And so what's the sword of his mouth? It's his word. I'm going to come and I'm going to have to speak a word and it's not going to be a word of blessing like I've been giving the other I'm going to have to come to these people and I'm going to have to speak a word of discipline and I'm going to have to speak a word of correction and it is going to be a problem and you don't want me fighting against you. You want me fighting for you. Everything is backwards of the way that it should be. And so what this means for us is it's not loving to allow members to continue to engage in the harmful sins of idolatry and immorality. It only leads to painful judgment at the hands of God himself. See, we have bought into, and what's Apparently, the church in Pergamum is doing is, well, as long as it's a couple of consenting adults, what business is it of mine? I know none of y'all have never heard that, have you? Because that is that something we believe in our culture? But see, the problem is, is Jesus says, no, see, it's not that way because it's not up to Caesar. It's not up to you. It's up to me. And I'm telling you, I'm going to deal with it. And so I'm telling you, there needs to be repentance. I am giving you time. And we're going to see, again, the process is further in Thyatira. And he says, I gave them time. And they didn't. And so now I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. And I'm going to put to death her children, he's going to say in Thyatira. You cannot delay my judgment. Because ultimately, you're not in charge. 
I am. And so the most loving thing someone can do is to say, hey, you can't continue in these sins of idolatry and immorality because it's destructive. It's not who you were made to be. I know you think this is who you were made to be. I know you feel this is who you are, but it is not who you are. It is not how God has made you, and therefore to act as if it is is to distort the very depths of your own being. And Jesus then comes finally, and he gives a word of reward in verse 17. And again, we hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. So again, this applies to every church. Every church needs to hear this message. And he says, and here's what it is, to him who overcomes. So you don't give in to the Nicolaitans, but you're an actual overcomer. Here's what I promise. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And that's so clear, I won't even comment on it. Right? Because y'all know what the hidden manna is, right? The, the crazy thing was when I looked at this, the hidden manna and the white stone are so obscure, one commentator said there's at least seven views of what one of them meant. Another one said, no, there's actually 12 views I discovered of what this thing means. Everybody likes to argue about it, and I'm not going to go into seven and 12 options. What I will tell you is this, uh, the thing that I think, the manna probably refers to God's sustenance of Israel, Balaam, when he was out there doing it. How were they sustained day after day? God was giving them manna. And they took one jar of the manna, and what did they do with it? They put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there, which was apparently lost when the temple was destroyed. And there were all kinds of apocalyptic ideas about what was going to happen when the Messiah came and all of this, which I don't think is central. What I think is really, really central is Jesus is saying, look, I know you want to talk about being in the wilderness. You all are where Satan has his throne. And I know you need to be sustained. And I am telling you, if you not only resist as you have done Orwell's nightmare, if you will resist Huxley's nightmare, I will sustain you. I will care for you. I will give you the manna. And by the way, I am the manna that came down from heaven. What you need to sustain you now in your journey through the wilderness and what you need ultimately is me. And I will give it to you now and I will give it to you eternally. And the white stone, there are many different references, but I think it probably was white pebbles were used for entrance into, like basically tickets into banquets, particularly pagan idolatrous banquets. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if you will, and the, the name, I believe, is probably the one given by God to the believers. It could be that Jesus' name, but I believe it's given to believers. If you read in Isaiah 62, and Isaiah 65, 15, which are visions of the end times, Jesus there says, I'm giving my people a new name. And so here he's saying, look, I know what you have done. You've refused to enter the pagan banquets and everything that they entailed. And if you will refuse the sexual immorality that is entailed by all of this, I'm going to give you the white stone, an entrance into a feast. And it's not going to be a pagan feast where you're getting their food, I'm going to give you where you get to come and feast upon the true manna, the bread of heaven, me. You're going to come to my banquet at the Lord's table and ultimately at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's the feast you want to be part of, not the feast that they're offering up there on the Acropolis. And so I'm telling you, do not give in. This will sustain you in your wilderness of your present journey, and it will ultimately point to the heavenly feast that is going to be yours. So Jesus is speaking this to the church. Now, what does this mean to us? Let's apply the word briefly 
and we'll close in prayer. There's two questions and I wasn't sure which one to put first because it's two obvious questions. Have I been seduced by idolatry? Last week we asked, are we willing to pay the price? When Orwell's nightmare comes, will Bay Ridge be found standing and saying, I will not compromise. It doesn't matter if you punish me economically. It does not matter if you penalize me at work. It does not matter if you throw me into jail. I will not pay the price. But see, now this week we're moved on from Orwell's nightmare to Huxley's, which we're going to live in in a couple of weeks. So first question, have I been seduced by idolatry? Idolatry. I wish it was just little figurines of a God, and I could say, let's all go through our houses and make sure you don't have any of those. But that's not what idolatry is about. Okay? That's not what it's about at all. The, the interesting thing is, Israel's first example of idolatry that got them in trouble was the golden calf. And they didn't say this was a different God that's rival to Yahweh. They said, this is Yahweh. This is the God, the Lord, Yahweh, who brought us out of Egypt. This is Him. And the problem that got them in trouble wasn't even that they were running after different gods. It was that they had morphed who Yahweh really was. And so it is possible for one to refuse to deny Jesus. And if the culture can't get to us that way, it'll try to come through the back door and say, well, maybe we can just alter who you think He is. Okay? If if you won't outright deny Him, maybe you'll just shift who he is and what he says and what he wants. That's exactly what the Balaam thing is doing. Persecution didn't work. You were right there. Anaphos even died, and you all stood strong. But maybe we can get you to change. And maybe Jesus isn't as against this immorality and this idolatry as you first thought. Okay? So, have I been seduced to a false view of Jesus? Let me give just a couple. In our culture... It's okay to like Jesus as long as he is the popular, non-judgmental Jesus. The the little plastic figurine we put on our dashboard, you know, and he's giving the thumbs up, whatever you're doing. We like that Jesus. That's that's the one we like, okay? I've mentioned many times before, you know, but some of the greatest theology ever in a movie is in that, that silly movie, Talladega Nights, with Ricky Bobby, and they get to talking about which Jesus they like. I like my Jesus to wear the kind of t-shirt with the tuxedo, you know. And they're all talking about how they want to make Jesus to be. Some of the best theology ever in a Hollywood movie because I sit there and say, and how many of us do the exact same thing? I take the parts I like. I like sweet baby Jesus. I don't like Jesus riding back at the end on a horse in judgment. Okay? Do I do that? Do I believe in the idol of God is love but not holy. If you put a bumper sticker on and say, God is love, everybody likes that. If I put a sign out front and say, we love here, that's not a problem. Get a bumper sticker that says, God is holy and will judge all sin. You will probably find somebody smashing your car. The fact is, does the scripture say God is love? Yes. Does the scripture say God is holy? And the bad news is, I've got news for you, he says he's holy way, 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 way more often than it says he is love. Way more often. Now, he's equally love and equally holy. But the point is, he's both. 
I might also point out he's a God of integrity, which means he does not change. So that's who he is. Have I bought into that conception because that's idolatry? And, and you can see, if I start buying into that, all standards cease. Because a loving God would just want me to do whatever I feel like. And we've gotten rid of the holy God. We've gotten rid of the, the angles off of God. Let me, one more form of idolatry. Do I believe people's interpretations of their feelings and experiences? Or do I believe God's unchanging and errant word? See, here's what's going on in our culture right now. You can't tell me I don't feel this way. I don't have to tell you whether I think you feel that way or not. That's not my business. What my business is, is what God says is right and true and just and holy and pure and good. And that's very clear, and that hasn't changed. And if what I am feeling, even in the deepest fiber of my being, goes against that, then what I'm feeling is wrong. It's just the way it is. Okay? Now that, but that, again, is not popular in our culture. And so, if I can't get you to deny Jesus, can you just do a little twist, and we'll talk about this part of Jesus, which we all like, but let's not talk about that other part that is equally there. Second question. Have I been seduced by sexual immorality? Now, I did research this week, and you all probably don't realize it, but our culture has some sexual immorality going on. That's why I'm here to give you all news you didn't realize otherwise. Are we awash in sexual immorality or what? I mean, we are, we are a confused culture. Absolutely confused. And it's almost so bad. And if you look in Romans, there's actually a progression of the sexual sin. And we are so far along the progression. We are almost to the point that the one thing that is no longer applauded sexually in our culture is the one thing that Scripture says is what, the way sex is supposed to be. That, that's looked down. Find a Hollywood movie that says, hey, here's what's hot. This couple's been married for 30-something years, faithfully to one another, never been involved with anybody else. That's good. No, that's always weird in a movie. But what's hot is me running off with somebody I just met, and supposedly that's better. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. But that's the way it is in our culture. We are no longer even shocked by heterosexual sins like fornication, adultery, or serial monogamy. You know what? What is Tim Tebow even known for now? It's that he's declared he's a virgin. And people act like that is the strangest craziest thing like something is wrong with the guy well no there's nothing wrong with that god bless him for standing up and saying that but in our culture that doesn't even seem to be on the palette of options and i hate to say it very often in the church it's treated that way there was a young woman a number of years ago and thankfully she repented. But she wrote a, base, a thing basically that said, look, here's the dirty little secret. I and none of my evangelical peers that are single, none of us are living by the biblical sexual ethic. We're all having sex. And so why don't we just admit this and come out? Well, thankfully she got called on the carpet and repented and said, you are right. That is unbiblical. It is what we were actually doing, but it was unbiblical and wrong. 
thanks be to God, she heard that and she repented. But that's because we've been seduced by our culture. And we are now increasingly accepting homosexuality, transgenderism, and any other sexual sin, as long as it meets the only thing that defines morality, which as long as two adults consent, everything is okay. And nobody's allowed to judge anything regarding that, right? Not even God, because God wouldn't, because God's only love. You see how the two feed together. And it doesn't matter which one of these questions I start with, because if I've started and I have to justify my sexual sin, I have to change my conception of God. But if I've already changed my conception of God, then any sexual sin is justified. Okay? And again, I want to point out, it's not because I just wanted to get up here and rant and rave about sexual sin today. It's, it's in the text. This is what Jesus is bringing out because the two are always associated. And so, do I believe the sexual ethic of Scripture or the sexual ethic of culture? And folks, you are being bombarded 24-7, and so am I. And if you think you're not affected by that, we're deceiving ourselves. You may stand strong against Orwell and Huxley eat your lunch because we get seduced into it. And how can it be bad? It seems so funny. It seems so nice. I like the people. None of which is the scriptural standard. So do I know that sex between a man and a woman who are married to each other is holy and good? And every other form is wickedness and depravity. Whether our culture likes to call it that or not, we get upset when people use words like depraved regarding certain sexual practices. But the scriptural thing is, every form other than a man and a woman who are married to each other and not involving anyone else is depraved. They're all a degradation of God's standard. All of it. Do I know that? And do I understand that God calls us to sexual purity in thought, word, and deed? Do I understand that? And I will go ahead and tell you, if you say, but if I'm at work and I act that way, yes, I will go ahead and tell you, they will laugh at you. They will mock you. They will make fun of you. I've said before, it was not exactly popular in 1983 or 84. We actually had it when I was at TBS. Some guys, I got in big trouble over this. They were having a bachelor party for a guy, so they, they were trying to get us to all pitch in. And they said, and we, I said, why do we need this much money? And they said, because we're, we're hiring a stripper. Said, well, good. Well, I'm not participating. Yeah, you are. No, you're not. Read my lips. <laughs> I am not giving you a dime for that. I'm not coming to the party. I'm not doing it. They just said, well, bless you. That's so good you're standing up for God and his morality like that. We Marines approve of that. Right? They stopped trying to give me any pressure over that. You imagine that? No, they went right back to pressure. And I was like, feel back here. There's a backbone. It ain't going to change. I'm not giving you a dime for that. And I don't care what you do. I'm not participating in that. It's wickedness. I'm not going to be involved. Are we going to do that or are we not? Because if we don't, we're being seduced. Do I actually live according to the sexual ethics scripture? Not just I believe it. Because see, here's one of the problems. Sometimes we believe something we say, but then we're not living that. Culture says sex before marriage is normal and to disagree is repressive. The question is, do, do I engage in that? Again, I, I appreciate that the young woman, I think it was in Christianity Today that she admitted it. But she was like, 
hey, this is just what's going on out here. Thankfully, she repented, but that was shocking and shocked a lot of people. So people were saying one thing on Sunday and then going out and living a completely different ethic because they had been seduced. Am I doing that? Culture says living together is the same as marriage, but Scripture says otherwise. Culture says, well, you know, you got to take a car for a test drive, right? Okay, but you're not buying a car. Five point out. <laughs> you're, you're getting united for life, and that has nothing to do with it. And I can also point out, by the way, all the studies that say that is like the worst thing you can do to prepare yourself for marriage is live together beforehand. Every study says that overwhelmingly leads to a higher divorce rate. It is, if I could pick one thing to doom a marriage beforehand, then just go ahead and live together beforehand, because that pretty much guarantees this thing is going to crash and burn. But our culture doesn't want to talk about that. Do, do I believe that and buy into it? If I struggle with same-sex attraction, do I live in holy celibacy, or do I just give in and engage in sin? And friends, that's a hard one. And please let me say here, the church is too quick to want to turn towards sins that we personally might not struggle with. I don't understand the struggle with same-sex attraction. I don't understand the struggle with transgenderism. I'm a dude. I like women. I don't like guys. But my tendencies of sexual sin are no better or more acceptable before God than somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction. It's sexual sin. And it was no better for somebody in Pergamum to give in and go to the temple and sleep with a temple prostitute, whether it was somebody of the same sex or somebody of the opposite sex. It was sexual sin. And it was seduction by the culture. So for those who are struggling with that, I encourage you, Jesus will reward our resistance. He will reward us not being seduced. He will reward us saying, Balaam, no. Not going to engage in the immorality or the idolatry. I have enough. I have the hidden manna. I have the stone. I have Jesus. And that is all that I need. Do we believe and do we understand? If we can, let's stand together. We're going to conclude with prayer. And this is a challenge. Okay, and it's a challenge for every one of us. If, if you're here and you don't think you can be seduced, if you think Huxley was just living in something, I encourage you this week, meditate and look around. Because I, I love both 1984 and Brave New World, but I fear Huxley's nightmare more than I do Orwell's. Because I find that I am much more likely to be tempted by that. And sugar tends to work better than the rod to get my attention. And so we want to pray against that. And as I pray, I would encourage you, if you find yourself struggling in one of these areas, open up and confess to God. And if you need, open up and confess to someone else and ask for some help. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we recognize as we look at your letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus, how easy it can be for us to stand strong 
and one day of battle and then to find ourselves seduced. To shut the front door of denying your name but have the back door of idolatry changing who you are and immorality to have that wide open. Lord, I pray for the antiseptic word of your Holy Spirit to blow through us as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church, that you would speak to us and that your word would be so clear, so vibrant, and so pure in our ears, when we hear the seductive word, we would know it for what it is. And we would say, I will not go there. I will not participate with that. Father, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, so form and fashion us that it is not just that we will be tempted by the things that we hate or will be run over by the things that we hate, but Father, would you form us so that what we love would be in line with what you love. And that our very loves, our pleasures, would not be our undoing. Jesus, I pray as we seek you this week in prayer, would you speak to us? Would you guide us? Would you purify us? Lord, we do not want to be the compromising church. We want to stand firm against the nightmare of Orwell, but we want to stand firm against the nightmare of Huxley as well. Would you do this? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go forth in the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.